0: On this episode of The London Life Scene, we talk with Dr. Yoram Hazzoni about his brand new book on conservatism. So we talk about all sorts of things like what is conservatism? What does it take to actually conserve and propagate beneficial ideas, behaviors, and institutions across generations? What are the greatest challenges to conservatism today? And is conservatism, is that even something that's workable in our current society? What what do we do when there's disagreement? How, how do we compromise? Is conservatism really consistent with scripture and what what does he mean by terms like new Marxism and woke ideology and are those actually useful terms when it comes to discussing and understanding the current landscape and much much more as always if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general hit us up twitter facebook instagram or check us out at our website thelondonlyceum.com now for the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet we think this one's going to get you thinking I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and I am writing solo today. And if you're new to listening to us, I always like to remind our listeners what we're all about. So we're all about serious thinking for a serious church. And that has looked like looking to certain virtues and trying to create an intellectual culture that cultivates these things of curiosity, critical thinking, charity, and cheerful confessionalism. So when we originally started, it was primarily designed to look at, hey, we're both Baptists, me and Brandon, and we realized that there's a problem in a lot of Baptist churches. It's almost like knowledge and critical thinking is uh, a vice rather than a virtue. So we wanted to create a a podcast that would promote serious thinking about these things. But then as we continue to develop it and continue to to grow it, we realize, you know what, there's a twin danger as well. For those who are serious about thinking, oftentimes it comes with a lack of virtue in how they go about it. There just isn't, uh, number one, a charity in the way those things are discussed the words that are used it's it's vicious in how it's gone about but it's also not pro- charity in the classical sense of presenting other people's arguments in the in the way that they would understand them and say yes that that's me so that's why we started the podcast and we've always been serious about talking to anybody and everybody. I don't care what you believe, what you think. We want to talk to you, and we want to treat you with dignity and respect. So today, talking to Dr. Jorma Zoni, now I think we're probably pretty close on a lot of things. There's other things I'm curious to find out about uh, and understand better, because I honestly don't know where I stand on a lot of these things. I'm a little bit of a political theology novice, but I know you listeners, uh, a lot of you guys are political theology nerds. So I'm pumped about this. Uh, if you don't have his book, I'll link to it in the show notes. He's got a website as well. I'll link to that in the show notes. So let's get to it. Dr. Hazzoni, I mean, it, it takes two seconds to look at your CV, your website, and realize that you're a leading intellectual in all sorts of things and that you do a lot of stuff. I mean, you're the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation. You're writing on the philosophy of Hebrew scripture, on political theology, on politics in general. I mean, huge range of expertise and, and thinking. So I want to know, how in the world did you come to decide I want to dedicate my life to thinking about these things? I mean, what was
1: the impetus for this being the area of your research? Well, you know, I'm I'm not exactly sure that that uh that this is what I want to dedicate my life to is something that's happened to me yet. I think, you know, that part of the problem, part of the uh uh the the advantage of uh not having an academic position. Uh, means that uh i you know i i don't have to worry terribly much about um, dis- you know the disciplinary hierarchies you know I, I most most intellectuals in the world today um have academic positions and what that means is that um they they have to publish for particular journals they have to publish on extremely narrow topics and uh if they start straying from it um, you know, un- unless they've become like some big superstar or something, most academics, if they start st- straying from it, um, people start looking at them funny and ask them, you know, you know, why aren't you doing your job that that you're being paid to do? Uh, so I, you know, I-, I I didn't I didn't design my life on uh, on on purpose. I mean, in in the book, I have a a little bit of biography there about how my wife and I met in. Uh, uh university and uh uh became became uh uh orthodox jews and 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 then moved to israel um and when when we got to israel right after you know uh right after college we you know we we were very young and idealistic and we decided that 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 was the place we were gonna make our stand and if you know if we had to open up a grocery store or a pie shop then that's what we were planning on doing and um i uh was learning in in yeshiva yeshiva is a you know kind of like an orthodox jewish seminary and uh and um uh, i we were at lunch with a particular young rabbi and uh you know and he, he asked me what i thought about uh uh about john rawls and i said you know who is john rawls because I had absolutely no idea who John Rawls was, and this this rabbi is dressed all in black, and he's never you know never set foot in a university, and and he says, Yoram, I I, I just I just can't believe this. I when he's like jaw just dropped, dropped away. He said, I can't believe this. Like here, you graduated from Princeton, and and you know you're sitting here and talking about you know all these like you know big things like but. You you don't know the, the name of the most important political theorist in the last fifty years? And I said, No, I don't. And he, he went so this rabbi goes to his bookshelf and pulls down uh John Rawls and 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 uh, Nozick, who's like his, his great opponent, and and the history of uh uh history of Western philosophy by Bertrand Russell, and he shoves this stuff at me and, and he says, Look, read this stuff and then come back and talk to me. And um as I started reading, I realized, I mean, I really realized that it was completely correct. I was completely ignorant. And, uh, and so uh, I decided to go to graduate school in political theory. And, uh, but, you know, I, even then I, I just, I didn't fit into the, you know, into the usual boxes within, you know, the, the, the first year you, 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 you take like a history of, uh, of a political philosophy that begins with, You know, pre-Socratics and Plato, and then goes all the way up to, uh, you know, Heidegger. Let's say, and uh, the whole time I was taking this introductory course, I kept thinking, you know, my gosh, I can't. You know, this stuff sounds so much like scripture, like the Bible. Now, when when I'm talking about the Bible, I'm I'm talking about the 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 Old Testament. I'm uh, I'm certainly not an expert in the New Testament, but Uh, But uh, it sounds like Jewish scripture. It sounds like Hebrew scripture. And this feeling just sort of like uh, uh, built up throughout my graduate studies, where I just kept bringing it up in class after class, and it turned out, you know, that the story they're telling of the West—and this is—I I now know that this is true. The story they tell of the West is is basically that it was born in Greece and then follows like this gigantic super highway to Berlin, and like all the major ideas happen along this trajectory from 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 Athens to Berlin, and uh, and so I, I asked to do my dissertation on the Bible, on, on the political thought of the book of Jeremiah. And, and my, I was just blessed that my you know, department, every single one of my professors was, you know, was a, a, a lefty kind of liberal, you know, th- there were no conservatives there and, and they were intrigued in those days you were allowed to ask out of the box questions and, uh, and they let me do it. And that that's the beginning of the story. And si- since then I've been, you know, uh, De- de- depending on what I could get support for uh, i i 've uh, built up you know a, a circle of friends who are interested in the kinds of things i 'm interested in and basically what we 're trying to do is to uh, uh, re- rethink you know what what would academia look like what would history history and bible studies and philosophy political theory um, and other disciplines what would they look like if you know it, if they were built on the assumption that uh, that Jerusalem is the is is the basis, you know, not not in any way to discount uh, Plato and Aristotle, but just that chronologically it all begins in in Jerusalem, <clears throat> and then trace the ideas forward and 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 see what the story looks like. It comes out looking real different.
0: Yeah, for sure. So I I think most of our listeners are, this is pretty timely because I think a lot of them are interested in these sort of questions. They're Especially, you know, w- with the changing and shifting culture, I think that's causing a lot of people to rethink their paradigms. Uh, people who are almost, I mean, I think of myself, I'm some, sort of a political novice and you're even, you know, it, even at the beginning of your book, you're talking about people who are, you know, they're almost like conservatives, but they don't really know what they believe and they're not really fighting for conservatism in any Legitimate way. So, I would probably put myself in that bucket for a long time, and I'm still trying to learn and understand um, where I fit in all of this. So, I think a lot of our listeners are probably in a similar spot. So, maybe the first thing we do now is just give me your, like, if you could give me one to two minute definition of what you would say, this is conservatism. When I'm talking about conservatism, this is what I'm referring to, because I think if I went and walked down the street and I asked people, What does conservative mean? I'm going to get 50 different answers. So just uh give me how would you describe it and maybe what are the common misconceptions that go along with it you would say that's not conservatism.
1: Okay, well um to ma- to make a complicated thing uh short and simple hopefully. Political conservatives are uh political conservatism is a tradition that sees uh that sees religious and national traditions. As being at the center of strengthening and maintaining a nation through, you know, over generations, over time, and uh, when when you begin with that, you know, that kind of question, you know, what would we need to do in order to be able to maintain a nation over time, and you start you start thinking about, you know, how, how does society work? Uh, what 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 makes a people unified? What makes them cohesive? What allows them to uh, to transmit things to the next generation, and what causes that to fail? So when you ask those questions, you get you know a very different set of answers than you get from uh, traditional liberal political thought. Now, li- liberal political thought is is uh, uh, Political philosophy that or, or political theory that begins in a different place it starts with some kind of an assumption like um, human beings are free and equal by nature uh, they're perfectly free and they're perfectly equal by nature and then it goes on to say uh, that their obligations only come from their consent, in other words when if people agree to you know to to be obliged morally or religiously. Or, or politically, then um, then they have to do you know what what they're told to do by you know by the state of the religion, but all that depends on consent. If you don't agree, then there are no obligations. Right? Conservatives look at this and they say, look, that's not a theory of obligation. that's that's a theory of how to be free from obligations because basically what you're saying is anytime you know somebody attacks your country, and uh, your country's at war, and your friends and your neighbors are fighting, and your family's in danger. And then you sit there saying, "Well, you know, do I consent to be, you know, to have an obligation to fight? No, I don't consent." And conservatives look at this and 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 they say, "Well, that that's not where that's not how obligations work." I mean, cer- certainly consent plays some kind of role, but you know, if you have an obligation to you know protect your family or to protect your country, it's got to be something that arises from. Uh, from the you know the, the human nature, the nature of societies, and 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 that's what we should be thinking about. So conservatives are you know can can love uh, individual liberties, you know as much as anybody else. But you, you can already tell that conservatives are are always balancing uh, individual liberties against other other important goods, uh, it, you know. It, is this going to is this going to contribute to the health of my family, my society? Is it can, can, can contribute to its cohesion, to its ability to to pursue the good? All of these things have to be balanced against liberty. So, um, j- just to be clear, the, the the tradition that I write about in my book is the Anglo American conservative tradition. I, I, I you know, conservatives can be very different in very different kinds of uh, national traditions. I, I mostly know about. Uh, this Anglo-American tradition. I know something about Jewish tradition. Those are kind of the things that that I know a lot about and other things I know less about. So how would you say that
0: conservatism might contrast a little bit with something like a just libertarianism? So like, I think my undergraduate education is probably split 50-50 between more Traditional conservatives, and then a bunch of libertarians. Especially, seems like every young guy that I met was a libertarian. Um, and then even maybe you know, I I've been quite intrigued. I don't know how much you've read Kevin Vallier's work. He talks about this uh, public, uh, I guess, reason liberalism, where he's trying to construct a liberal sort of paradigm. But it, it, it's it's not the traditional like what most people think of as liberal. It's not like I want to right it's it's the classical liberal so maybe where does libertarianism and classical liberalism what are the main differences between those and conservatism
1: right well um j- just one thing about uh, about about kevin uh the the liberalism that i'm des- describing is uh uh I, if you're in an academic semi- setting you might want to specify and say enlightenment liberalism okay or p- people sometimes say classical liberalism enlightenment liberalism is is the uh the, the set of views that is descended from um from polit- rationalist uh political thinkers uh, uh of you know uh, uh like Hobbes, john Locke's second treatise uh, spinoza R- rousseau's social contract kant the this group of thinkers that they, they, they kind of give you the uh the foundation for a for a liberal worldview uh whose premises are equality and the equality and freedom of the individual, obligation by consent. And then a third thing I didn't mention, which is the universality of reason, the assumption that that all um human beings, all healthy, normal human beings are endowed with the same reason, and they can identify self-evident Ideas or principles, they can agree quickly, reasonably quickly, to them, and then from those deduce conclusions that are universally valid. So, what that thing, what I've just described, let's call it Enlightenment liberalism. Now, what Kevin is uh, is is you know always objecting on social media, and it's completely uh, reasonable from his perspective. He's saying, "What are you talking about Enlightenment liberalism for? Don't you know that that's been you know that that's been dead for thirty years?" And now he's he's right that beginning in the late nineteen eighties nineteen nineties, a lot of academic liberals um, uh, start looking at these premises, which had been you know conservatives had been pounding these premises and Marxists had been pounding these premises. You know for 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 hundreds of years, literally, conservatives have been saying these premises make no sense, and then the Marxists joined in. And at some point in around, around the 1990s, academics who identify themselves as, as liberals started throwing pieces of this overboard. Um, Richard Rorty, a philosophy, famous philosophy professor, um, described it as, well, you know, we used those Enlightenment rationalist premises to climb up the ladder to liberalism. But now we're we're up there. We can just get rid of the ladder. We don't need the ladder anymore, which should sound scary to you because it is. But uh, so what happens is that a lot of academics talking about liberalism, they're now talking about all sorts of things. And in some ways, they sound more like conservatives. But I, I, I think that if you want to keep your head clear, you should notice that in the public sphere, the great majority of intellectuals, politicians, journalists, just about anybody who is talking about liberalism. Is still talking about some kind of enlightenment liberalism, even though the academics are saying, no, but no, but no, but but we 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 want we want to amend that. So I'm gonna to stick to that for now.
0: Cool. That's super helpful. So early on in your book, you mentioned this several times, where this idea of conservatism wants to conserve and propagate beneficial ideas, behaviors, and institutions across generations. And I really like the way you set that up. So I I, I want to know, in your mind, I mean, what does it take to do that? So if someone says I'm convinced of this, how is it that they go about conserving and propagating
1: these things? Okay, uh, there's an awful lot about that in my book. And uh, uh, let, let let's begin with this um, uh, with this this concept of uh, of cohesion. Uh, conservatives, you know, go, going back many centuries assume that there's such a thing as cohesion or fellow feeling um, it, it, that that, that uh, refers to the degree to which uh, a given loyalty group, a loyalty group, I'm sorry about the jargon, loyalty group could be like a you know, it could be a family as a loyalty group, a small loyalty group, a family, a congregation, a tribe, a nation. even even, even you know families of nations can be, can be loyal to one another, can have a certain degree of cohesion. And when we talk about um, cohesion, we're talking about um, something objective that exists in the political world, uh, even though it's not included usually in liberal political theory, but it's something that's objective. If you uh, squeeze, lean, hard uh, on on some families they, they they come together in adversity if hard times make them feel uh, closer to one another and and uh, and feel like they're 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 fighting together in order to overcome some you know some great hardship or or maybe to achieve some you know some great triumph and they feel one another's pain and they feel one another's uh, what's happening? Each one feels, to, you know, what's happening to mom and what's happening to dad, as though it's happening to them or to their sister and their brother. So th- that we just disc- we call that a you know a high degree of cohesiveness. That when 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 you when you bear down on it, people come together. Uh, on the other hand, you the, there's the opposite, which is 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 dissolution. A, a a dissolute family is one that when you lean on it, the opposite happens. The, the husband and wife start, you know, start fighting all the time and they start blaming one another instead of seeing that, you know, that they need to come together. They, they just start blaming one of this happened because of, you know, this happened because of you. And then the kids start doing the same thing. Now, so at, at a very basic level, this, this, this question of uh, the, 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 the heart of the question of conservative political theory is, is, you know, what, what do you need to do in order for. Families, tribes, nations, congregations, uh, to to be cohesive in this way, and uh, in 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 uh, in my my book, Conservatism: A Rediscovery, I I make the argument that the that the principal mechanism. This is this is uh, not ju- it's not just a political argument. It's 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 a psychological. I think it's a psychological fact that the principal mechanism that causes. People to be loyal to one another is uh, giving honor. Now, giving honor, your audience should be able to recognize this immediately as an important biblical value. It's almost never discussed. It's almost never taught uh, in li- liberal society. People don't even know what it means. But if you go back to um, you know to Hebrew scripture, you'll see that this this idea of uh, kavod, kavod is Hebrew for weightiness of making making your husband weighty and significant, acting as though they're important. And the same thing for your wife. And children owe an obligation, according to scripture, an obligation to make their parents uh, weighty and significant. OK, that uh, it turns out that when you have a uh, any kind of hierarchy, any kind of loyalty group, where um, where the younger people are giving honor to the older people, and the older people are sort of exchanging honor with the other people who are, are at their, their their level and everybody can see that that's what's going on that that's that's like putting money in the bank when the hard times come people feel the connection the the loyalty to the people who've been honoring them all along OK, and so if you want it like a simple, a real simple answer to the question, what's happening to America? Why does it feel for the first time in our lives like uh, like it's really literally going to come apart? Like people, you know, like the different tribes hate each other so much that they even even the simplest thing, they can't they can't come together and say, yeah, we need to come together for that because they got to blame the other guy. So what's happening is is uh, what conservatives call dissolution. And the the root cause of it is an incapacity to honor people who disagree with you. Now, if you if you were able to do that kind of honoring, then this is this is a long answer to your to, to your question. But this is this is the punchline. The punchline is that 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 loyalty groups that do honor one another are the ones where transmission from one generation to the next is is capable of occurring if children honor their parents they are capable of learning from them if they honor their teachers they're capable of learning from them if they don't if they aren't taught to honor their parents right then then as you know very early they they become teenagers and biologically you know the hormones start 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 churning and and they they come to have contempt for their parents they, their bodies get stronger, their minds get stronger, and they look at their parents or their teachers or any other authority figures and they say, "Wow, these people are complete idiots i don't you know I, I don't need to inherit anything from them gosh and and, and and then they you know they think that whoever's like the, the leader of their their high school clique like is smarter than their parents are and This all comes back to the question of is there honor in the family, is there honor in society?" Mm.
0: So that, that's, I think, for me, very intuitive. Um, even with the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul saying, uh, uh, like, outdo one another in honor. Um, the theme's all over the place. So I, I definitely agree with that. One thing I'm curious about, just to go down this trail, is at least in my studies, I had a lot of uh, various professors who would say America, at least in our context, is not a culture of honor and shame. So we've sort of lost that and it's almost uh, our currency is based on something else. Whereas if you went to somewhere like Japan, it's very much a culture of honor and shame. Would you say that no, just it is honor and shame, but just the way it looks is a little bit different. So we still need to focus on honor. And then the follow-up to that, I would want to know, like, what is... A person like me in the individual society, or someone who we have a lot of pastors who listen, who's a pastor, like how do they cultivate showing honor to one another?
1: Well, look, I, I think um, I, I think all the talk about you know uh, some societies are honor and shame societies, and others aren't. Uh, th- look, th- th- there is something to it because uh, you know it, if you're if you're if you're talking about um, uh, you know traditional Japan where um, so when so- someone is dishonored and he's he's expected to, you know, if he's a noble person and 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 he's dishonored himself, then he's or or been dishonored, then he commits suicide. The, you know the, these kinds of extreme. You know, I shouldn't even go to Japan. I mean, even even the dueling culture of uh, you know of, of uh, English or American gentlemen. I mean, you know, you, you you read about Burr killing Hamilton in a pistol duel, and 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 uh, you can read up about you know how that happened because because you know that they, they they slighted one another's honor. I, I think for sure. Uh, we look at those kinds of societies and we say, wow, our society is really different from that. I, I think that's true. I don't want to pretend it's not. But at the same time, uh, I think that the whole the, this claim of honor-shame society is very misleading because all human societies function, not, not as a peripheral thing, but as an absolutely essential thing. They function on the basis of honor and shame. Maybe people call it something different. But um, you know, why why is it that human beings give up prizes? Why is it that human beings compete? They compete for wealth. They compete for athletic ability. They compete for they, they 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 compete for intellectual status. But every single one of us, you know, no matter you know how how pious we are, and this is Adam Smith wrote wrote a whole book on this by by the way the the, the theory of moral sentiments. Every single one of us feels good when we're being praised. And feels bad when we're being, you know, disregarded or or discounted or or you know attacked and insulted, and that that's that's just the way human beings are. And so I I think, you know, a Jew or a Christian, who um, you know, is descended from from the scriptural uh, view that you know the life of every human being is so important. We you know we find it really difficult. To see honor and shame contests, you know, and, and ending in pistol duels or end, ending in you know, you're killing yourself. But it doesn't in any way mean that th- there's less honor and shame in the society. It just it it, it just means that it's expressed in different ways. Uh, you know what what is cancel culture other than uh, shaming people? And don't don't tell me that the you know that the Marxists in, in, invented it because you know back when you know when the liberals were in charge, it, you know, it wasn't as though, you know, if, if you said something that wasn't properly uh, liberal, you know, then people would look around to see, you know, who the important people in the room were and how they're reacting. And if those people, you know, think that what you said is, you know, it's fine, it's, de- it's uh, deviate- deviating or, or or different, but it's fine, we respect it, then everybody in the room ends up respecting it pretty much. And if they say, Well, that's a very strange thing to say, Dr. Hazzoni. Then everybody kind of wrinkles their noses and they know that they should stay away from you. All societies are like that. We're never going to get rid of that. Yeah,
0: so that's good. So I've got like 15 questions I want to ask you. So I'm going to try to get through the ones that I think are the most interesting to me and I think to our listeners. So one thing, as I look around our society, I mean, it's obsessed with freedom. There's You've talked about this Hyper this they want to almost like kill each other, disagreement level of disagreement. I mean, how does conservatism work in that environment? How do you compromise? How do you find areas of agreement uh, among each other? Maybe you go back to this concept of honor. I mean, what does that really look like uh, for us today when our society is so fragmented, so obsessed with freedom?
1: Um, well, look, I this is a it's this is a hard question and it's it's a crucial question i i think we need to look at it in different levels i mean it it may really be that you know that i don't know that uh that marxists that most of them at this moment i'm, I'm talking about the 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 woke neo marxists who have uh kind kind of uh, succeeded in putting most of the liberal institutions in america and britain under their thumbs uh two years ago in the year twenty twenty. There's this huge watershed moment in the in, in the history of uh uh of the Western nations. It 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 may be that a lot of those people are, you know, they are uh really pumped up with their ideology. They feel like victory is coming. They don't they don't feel a common enemy, you know, certainly not with conservatives and probably not with liberals. And you know, this is this is a really, really a, a difficult situation, but I, I would suggest that we start in a different thinking about this in a in, in a different place, because if there are no societies anywhere, let's say in America, where um, where this kind of uh, honoring your rivals is being uh, modeled and cultivated, then it's it's a really big leap to expect that at you know at the national level. Uh, that that uh, uh, you know that the leading national political figures uh, who are on television every day, and if these huge egos that they're going to be doing it, if it's not happening at the state level and it's not happening, you know, sort of within the national church organizations or uh, or, or or other such things, I, I I I I suggest to people to you know take take out the uh, the old video footage of um, of uh, Nixon debating. Uh, uh Kennedy in 1960 or Reagan debating Carter in 1980 or Mond- Mondale in 1984 just go back and look at these debates and and pay attention to this fact are these people stirring up hatred against one another are they demeaning one another are they calling each other names are they they, they are are they suggesting that they're disloyal to their country i mean uh, that they work for russia or for i mean the, the, just go back and look at it They may hate each other, but they're refined and disciplined enough to understand that the good of the country depends on them emphasizing explicitly and implicitly, you should vote for me. But if you vote for the other guy, it's not the end of the world because I know that he cares about our country and I'll work to try to help him. And then I'll win the next time around and he'll work to try to help me. Okay, that that is what is disappeared, and so I think start by thinking: Am I doing this in my family? Do my husband and, and do, do I do this with my wife? Do we do this in in our in our local church? Do we do this in larger scale, you know, big organizations at the national level? Um, if it's taking place in a lot of places then there's a chance that, that, you know, people will rise up and, and they'll have an influence and they'll, and, and, and things will slowly change, but I'm afraid that things are going the opposite direction, that the, uh, that the national leadership, uh, you know, the, the models, contempt um, and, 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 uh, hateful warfare, uh, both parties all the time. And that this, um, Th- th- this trickles down; it doesn't. It cascades down into all the other levels.
0: So, you mentioned the the concepts of like new Marxism and woke ideology, and I think probably most of our listeners are like right on with that. And there's, uh, I think, another segment who would say um, they don't love those terms because they feel like they are uh, like, especially woke. I see this oftentimes where people say, "Well, what does that even mean?" Because if does not mean that I actually care about fighting racism or, or things like that? So maybe just can you explain what those terms you think they mean and if they are useful terms to use? And then I think, you know, as I think about the people who want to identify as woke, I think a lot of them want to say, well, I think that's just consistent with Hebrew scripture even. They look at, you know, God being the God of the oppressed, uh, of the minority, uh, and they see sort of the different laws that are instituted to protect them and how God hears their cries. And they say, that's what's consistent with the old Testament, even the new Testament. So I guess, first, are these terms useful? And then secondly, how would you reconcile conservatism with uh, the interpretation of the old Testament that is often used in support of these sort of things?
1: Well, uh, I think, look, I think, I I think it's important to, um, to focus on, on, uh, real things and not on labels and names, the labels and names are useful you know so so people can understand one another but you 're certainly right that if people you know don 't really understand how the terms are being used, then you know it, it, it 's easy to just not get anywhere so let 's uh, let 's start with um a a four way division okay there uh, we already talked about liberalism um, liberalism was the you know, was the dominant public philosophy in America and Britain and across Europe uh, from after after the Second World War until, I would say, until two years ago. There's uh, 60, 70 years in which we can say liberalism of the kind I described, that there are many, many different, you know, sub-varieties and sub-streams, but the general um, uh, freedom and equality of the individual liberalism, consent liberalism that I described – has been dominated for 60 or 70 dominant for 60 or 70 years and uh, the the um, the conservatism that I was talking about it, which focuses much more on continuity and the nation religious tradition as you know as central to keeping the nation together and, and handing down um, uh, uh, crucial values and behaviors uh, that was a that grouping was a minority but it it had enough uh power so that you know so that somebody like Ronald Reagan would come into office and th- th- that would be due to a very large conservative christian um uh, uh support and and the those those people the, the you know the um Jerry Falwell and Billy Graham and that entire wing of the the Reagan movement um th- those are not those are not liberals those are those are real conservatives and uh they 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 came into an alliance with certain kinds of liberals to get to get Reagan elected um now le- let's look at let's fast forward 30 years um uh to to 40 years to today and there's two other blocks that we need we need to give them some kind of name Okay. And I'll give, you know, I'll call them what I'm going to call them. But if you want to use a different term, that's fine with me. Okay. So one block is, um, is the the group that I'm calling neo-Marxists, whose worldview is, is not fundamentally based on, uh, on the, uh, on, on the freedom and liberty of the individual. It's a worldview that is based on classes, meaning groups. Some of you might immediately notice that you know that when i talk about conservatism i'm also talking about groups so you you can tell the difference between uh marxists and liberals because marxists say hey wait a second what are you talking about it, the liberty of the individual don't you know that the, the, that there's such a thing as class interests that you know that that the uh that uh, that the, the people o- who own factories Either purposely collude and and coordinate their positions, or they don 't do it purposely it's it 's just something that happens naturally that they respect one another and copy one another and what they they, they do is they in effect they end up a, a, oppressing um, the workers all right that that 's classic Marxism when we talk about um, neo marxism we 're not necessarily talking about economic classes. Uh, we're talking about different kinds of groups that struggle against one another in society, but what uh what what unites um, uh the different thinkers where all of them descended from from uh from marx, what unites them is that they all say groups stronger groups inevitably oppress weaker groups, right so stronger groups always in a marxist frame. Always oppress weaker groups, so they look at liberalism and they say, "You guys are joking. Take a look at you. Don't you see the classes in the society and how they're always oppressing the weaker classes?" And you know what? A lot of the time, this is—I'm saying this is a conservative. There are many times when they're right, when those criticisms are actually correct, that liberalism is leading to a a quiet oppression of one group or another, and the Marxists might be right about it. Now, the the difference between the Marxists and the conservatives is that the Marxists say that there is no way out of the strong group oppressing the weaker groups the result has to be revolution probably violent marx says it's, it, it it's going to end violently maybe it'll end peacefully but but in any case it ends with the destruction of the oppressor group. The oppressor group is going to be annihilated. It's not going to exist anymore. And there's some kind of utopian future, all the different kinds of Marxists say, there's some kind of utopian future, which they usually can't describe almost at all, in which the um, the oppression stops. Now, a conservative looks at this and says, what do you mean the oppress- oppression stops? You just started out by showing that, you know, that human beings always are in groups. And then you say that the, that because they're always in groups and, and and being in groups means somebody's always oppressed. So how are you going to stop it? So conservatives look at this in a completely different way. They say, right, there are these groups. And it's true that oppression can exist, and and uh, scripture certainly is focused on this kind of thing very often, on the on on the oppression of of weak groups within the, the society, uh, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and all all of the rest of the things that are familiar to you. But a conservative says, "Look, all societies, all human societies, are hierarchical. There are always going to be groups, and some will be stronger than others." And the search for justice in a society is not the search to destroy the strongest group, which causes chaos and is is usually just evil. It's the search to find the proper balance so that each group is getting the, is, is getting the honor that's due to them. Now, the, the honor that's due to them, it may involve giving, you know, if they're, if they're, Poor. It may involve giving them charity if they're um, if they're despised. It may involve, you know, speaking well of them publicly. You know, a leader who says, you know, and 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 we honor this group for their contributions. You know, that can be an incredibly important thing to people. Okay, so the last group I want to talk about just really quickly is to the right of conservatives, or or you know, sort of towards the fringe. There are other groups that are are not fundamentally nation based and it's important to talk about them now because on the American political right we see every year uh that that um beyond the conservative uh, uh conservative circles uh that think about the nation, there are race based ideologies. And or dictatorial ideologies, which are growing on the American right. Now, I'm, I'm not a leftist. I'm not talking about, you know, Donald Trump is a, you know, is a Nazi and Josh Hawley is a Nazi and Tucker Car- Car- Carlson is a Nazi. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, which is all, I mean, that's all bunk. But, but I'm saying that there literally are groups that explicitly talk about uh, Christianity and Judaism as having failed. Uh, or the the American constitution the Anglo-American c- constitutional tradition is having failed and they're looking for uh, a a dictator they th- many of them are uh, overtly pagan in one way or another uh, and those groups are in fact getting rapidly stronger in the United States one of the most important goals that conservatives have is to is we 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 look at the young people in, in the United States, let's say somebody who's 25 years old, and we know that if they're curious at all, they're reading uh, uh, Curtis Yarvin and Bronze Age Pervert, and and, uh, and uh, you know the, Nick Fuentes. Not that he writes anything, but um, uh, uh, he, 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 <laughs> these are these are um, non-Christian or anti-Christian uh, groups which have a great influence on the young right now because the young see that liberalism is failing. Many of them think the Marxists are evil and they're looking for an alternative and conservatives have to provide that alternative.
0: That's super helpful. So one one other thing I wanted to ask you about that really piqued my interest as I'm reading your book, you mentioned that liberalism has no power to make anything stable or permanent uh, and you gave an example of the end of racially based laws and social norms in America, uh, where the results have been ultimately superficial, or I think I think everybody agrees, the results have been superficial. But I think some people would be surprised that you would say that liberalism just doesn't have the power to do it, whereas conservatism would have the tools to do it. So maybe explain, like, what are these conservative tools, and
1: how would it made it, have made a difference to have something permanent? 1st first, first, let's go back to the issue of honor um i think i think that um uh, you know i i know many people in 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 the uh, american conservative movement who um they they really are colorblind um m- meaning uh they they live their lives um you know running magazines or you know or or uh, uh, you, uh running academic institutions or or running businesses and they really subjectively feel you know no no negative feelings whatsoever uh to people whose skin color is different from theirs um and and when when you ask them okay look um what are, what are we what are we doing in order to make sure that let's say black americans um, that they feel comfortable with our movement, that they feel like they can identify with our movement, if or at least feel that they're a part of our movement. And they say, well, look, um, we don't discriminate. You know, we we just, I mean, what they're really saying, I mean, they don't mean to say this, but what they're saying is we don't care, you know, is that, that um, it doesn't it's not a big deal to me that my Rolodex has almost no blacks in it because when I meet a you know an articulate eloquent intelligent black you know I I I do everything I can to to you know get them published in my magazine and to run them for office and so they know that they don't have anything as blacks but they don't notice that that this color blindness is it's just is is not what people are looking for in order to honor another group, if you want another, if you want a group that's different from your group, if you want them to feel loyalty to you, to feel close to you, you have to honor them, and you can't honor them by giving them what you think would be honorable. You have to honor them by giving them what they think would be honorable, and I I, I think that's the 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 heart of the whole matter, is that um, that you know the Republican Party uh, ha- has been you know was the 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 the, the leading pro black civil liberties party uh from lincoln you know going going onward for almost the entire history of the united states and um but but blacks don't they, they don't feel honored in the republican party they 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 don't color blindness makes lots of black people feel like like people aren't seeing what they're going through so it's time to start that's it
0: that is actually really profound and helpful. So thank you for that. So, I mean, what's the last question I want to ask you? Maybe in your opinion, what is or are the greatest challenges to conservatism today? So, if it wants to continue to be sustained from generation to generation, what are those? Or maybe it's just a single one. What is, what is that challenge?
1: The greatest challenge is the uh, is the the dishonorable position in which the bible uh, uh exists today i i i mean the these these enla- the the enlightenment rationalists that we were talking about s- spent hundreds of years like 2 200 300 years trying to create a society in which the bible would be dishonored in which it would be considered superstition and foolishness and the the opposite of philosophy and the opposite of reason and we have to understand that that has succeeded right succeeded even believing christians pious christians and i'm i'm talking about across denominations when they move in you know sort of more educated circles they stop talking about the bible they maybe they, they don't even notice it I, I i don't i don't mean to pick on christians it's the same with jews that, that they don't even notice that that their bible education um makes other people think that they're ignorant and so they stop talking about it and 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 americans exist now for for two generations in a society in which God and Scripture are dishonored every single day in schools that that you know that Christian and Jewish kids go to. They're dishonored every single day by their absence. you know the uh, teachers, entire school systems, the whole country thinks it's normal that that God and and the Bible can are just not important enough to be to, to be mentioned in in schools or in public life in 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 most elite educated places let's say television programs, you know, like, when does it, it, it's been erased, the Bible has been erased, and the people who believe in it are collaborating with this erasure. And that's, that's the hardest thing. That's the first thing. If we can, if we can move the Bible back into a position where, where we feel like it's legitimate to talk about scripture and about God in, in public life, then, then we can start pushing other people to to honor it and to recognize it and to say to them, "Listen, okay, you're not a believer, but you, you, surely you know that the Bible is the foundation do, foundational document of uh, uh, of our civilization and of this country. You must know that, right? And you have to say it and get people to agree and get people to start thinking about it and talking about. It. And if, if we don't do that, you know nothing else is going to help
0: yeah that's excellent so i imagine if you guys are listening i mean we've covered a lot of ground we've and i think you guys have been super interested in it but we didn't cover a ton of stuff so i mean we, we didn't cover the conservative paradigm in full we didn't cover um you know the purposes of government um all sorts of things so if if you want to know more what you need to do is you need to go buy the book um, so i'll have a link to it in the the notes so if you're listening on itunes or wherever you listen to your podcast i think more than half of you guys listen on apple so it'll be there there'll be a link just a hyperlink you click it go buy it um, I think you'll enjoy it. It's not written at a level where you can, or you're going to feel like you don't understand it. So I know we sometimes we have some more academic guests where you might go buy their book and you're like, "Wow, I need a dictionary for literally every word that I'm reading." You can you can very well understand. What Dr. Hazoni is saying he's written it in a, in a style that's uh, it's entertaining, it's readable. I mean, I was reading it at the beach with my two kids asking me to help with like digging stuff, and I was able to keep you know track of what's going on. So, I really uh, think you would enjoy reading the book. So, go get it. Um, and another thing, I want to I don't always tell you guys to do this, but you should uh, just think when you read a book and you think this was actually really helpful, one of the best ways to help the author, encourage the author to write more. Um, other than just sharing their work with other people, is to actually go on Amazon and give them a a good rating. Um, You'd be surprised at how much those sort of things influence the algorithm and influence people's buying decisions. So if you want more uh, helpful works to be propagated, that's a a very simple way you can support authors, is by giving them a five-star rating on Amazon and giving just, hey, this is what the book is, this is why I think you should read it, um, that really makes a difference. So I encourage you to do those sort of things when you read books that you enjoy, including this one. So everybody's been tuning in. I'll make sure you have links to all this stuff, including his website, so you can go check it out and read more of his work. Because I think um, it, it's it's needed, it's fascinating, and um, it, it's enjoyable just to, to be thinking about these ideas. Because they are the greatest ideas uh, that America has really ever come up with. So clas- clashing with them is... Uh, Super fun. So, anyway, everybody's been listening. Thanks for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue! All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon